Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Ben Harris. If we haven't met yet, I'm the pastor here at New City. It's good to be with you all and open God's Word together. Um, I would imagine the vast majority of us in our church family have heard by this point uh, that our brother in Christ, Doug Mackey, who is also my wife's uncle, um, passed away earlier this week. Uh, we had a wonderful time celebrating him and uh, grieving him at the same time yesterday. Um, and I do just want to take a second and say thank you to our church family. Um, you guys uh, have sacrificed and helped out and asked how can we be involved in, in a multitude of ways. And I'm very grateful as both your pastor uh, and uh, part of our family that is grieving. So thank you to all of you who did many, many things to care for us uh, in all the ways that we are family together this week. Thank you. Um, I also want to give a shout out and a, and a double thank you to our setup and teardown team and all those who jumped in and sweated with us this morning. Uh, in God's divine providence, there is a college football sized honeybee nest wrapped around the tongue of our trailer. And so we could not move it this morning for a multitude of obvious reasons. And so thank you to all of you who went out there and moved all the stuff over. And if you really, really want to experience Florida at its finest, you can help us move all of it back over to the trailer after church uh, this afternoon. We are returning to a series that we were in earlier. Uh, we, we stopped for five weeks and shifted to another series. We're now coming back to finish out the book of James. So if you have your Bible, you can go back to the book of James in the New Testament. And we're picking up where we left off, which is chapter 3, verses 13 through 18 this morning. And the scripture is going to speak to us about the topic of wisdom. Um, this is a part of a larger series as we began in James that I'm calling Talk the Talk and Walk the Walk, meaning what are the nuts and bolts of daily life following Christ if we have experienced his grace and mercy, and it must start there, what does it look like for us to follow Jesus and live those things out in our daily life? Uh, the book of James is extremely practical. It is extremely hard-hitting. I don't imagine the man James who wrote the book was more of the sensitive type, but was more of the truth speaker to us. And so um, we come to God's word ready to listen, to submit, to learn, and be reminded of the, the grace of God this morning. Hear the word of the Lord as I read to us verse 13 and 18, thir or 13 through 18. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Thus far, the reading of God's word, let's pray and ask for his blessing over his word this morning. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word to us. We thank you that you are, in fact, the word made flesh. We thank you that you came down to us when there was nothing within us that would earn or, or make us desirable. We thank you that in your kindness, you have come down to us, not only sending your son to save us, but in particular this morning, we consider that you have sent your wisdom, your power, your Holy Spirit to us. And so, Father, we desire more of you. We desire to be free of the sins and the struggles and the foolishness that entangles so easily. Draw us near to your kindness this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. 
Amen. Three ways this morning from this short passage in James that we uh, learn how to gain the wisdom of Jesus Christ. How to do so. Number one is this very clearly. We see this in verses 14 through 16 in particular. Number one, reject the wisdom of the world below. Maybe this is obvious, maybe it is not, but James wants to talk to us in depth about this. Reject the wisdom of the world below. Um, Maybe you are not familiar with this particular story. I certainly was not. So let me enlighten you about the story of the Northwest Passage Expedition of 1845. Anyone? Sweet. Uh, This was an expedition that their task was essentially in sailing ships to find a way to cut through northern Canada and through the North Pole to get from one side to the other. Um, Royal Navy Rear Admiral... Sir John Franklin, I love that title, I, want, I don't want to be pastor anymore, I want to be that, uh, is my new title, but Sir John Franklin and 138 other officers left England on two sailing ships, one named the Terror, and the other named the Erebus, which means dark path to Hades, fun, fun. Uh, each sailing ship was equipped with a backup steam engine, okay, so sailing ship, right, they don't have power, but they had a backup steam engine and a 12-day supply of coal. Instead of wisely putting more coal on the ship, these are the items that they decided to put on each ship. A 1,200-book library. Each ship. Each ship was, of course, equipped with an organ, an organ, uh, and elegant dinner settings, including fine china and sterling silverware. Get this. With each of the officers' family crests and initials engraved on each custom set of silver flatware. How nice. I'd like that also. Um, October, Pastor Appreciation Month. That's not what I want. Um, They also took their standard uh, uniform, complete with all the regalia, but nothing in the way of extreme winter clothing. Um, A British whaling ship in northern Canada was the last to see them alive. Uh, When they did not return, search parties began the 20-year process of trying to figure out where they were and what had happened, what their terrible fate was. Uh, Within the year, they found the remains of the first 35 men at a place that is now called Starvation Cove. Another 30 bodies were found in a tent at a place that is now named Terror Bay. Among the bodies was a particular soldier who had a box under his arm, and in that box was engraved silver flatware. The officers froze to death, still dressed in their fine button blue uniforms and their silk scarves. The Franklin expedition lacked wisdom, to say the least. It was foolishly conceived, foolishly planned, foolishly executed, accomplished absolutely nothing, and every single man on that journey died. So goes the wisdom of this world. When you follow what the world, what the culture says, and it is opposite what Christ says, that is the inevitable result. That is the picture that James gives us here. Verses 14 through 16 paint a similarly dismal picture of the process and where it goes when it says, if you have, and think about the, the characteristics that are being described, if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. 
For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. Uh, I want to look at, at four of the sort of the main characteristics of what worldly wisdom looks like here in this initial passage. The first that he keeps repeating is bitter jealousy or bitter envy. That is when you are angry, you are filled with rage, maybe people see it or maybe it's just passive aggressively deep within towards those who have accomplished what you wanted to accomplish, towards those who are doing what you wanted to do or towards those who possess what you wanted to possess. Our culture, our world absolutely teaches that you have the right to have everything that you want to have. You have the right to be envious and angry and bitter towards those who have things that you don't have. That is worldly wisdom. Nowhere in scripture will you see that reality. Secondly, it says that worldly wisdom is selfish. This is sort of the wretched twin of jealousy, jealousy and selfishness. Uh, The word in Greek is irithea. Uh, James Ropes has a commentary on James, and he says that erythea, this is how he defines erythea, this, this uh, uh, selfishness, this selfishness. Here's how he describes it. The vice of a leader of a party created for his own pride. It is party ambition, party rivalry. Let me suggest to you in this next election cycle that if you want to discern what the deal is with a particular candidate, whatever office they may be searching out, ask yourself this question. Is this person doing what they want to do? Uh, Are they running for office for the sake of the people or are they running for the sake of themselves? But understand that James' focus here is not particularly political. James' focus is the church. James' focus is Christians. That is what he is talking about. Uh, Christians, pastors in particular, or Christian leaders of one sort or another, listen to how Paul picks up this same reality and describes it, Philippians chapter 1. Some indeed, he says, preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel, The former proclaim Christ out of, same word, selfish ambition. This is Christians who do Christian stuff or pastors who do pastor stuff that looks good from the outside, but in reality, there is a heart that is doing what they are doing out of their own insecurities that they have not experienced the hope and the the, the healing that comes only from Christ, and they do what they do for their own gain. They do what they do for their own glory. And so the question that all of us as believers ought to ask of ourselves because of this passage is, who do I represent? Am I here to represent the kingdom of me or the kingdom of Jesus in what I say, in the way that I act, in the way that I treat people? See, the wisdom of the world says, me first, right? And we are born that way. We are conceived that way. Nobody had to tell any of my children to think me first. Right? It, it comes very naturally. Me first. Not so with Jesus. Philippians 2, if we were to go there, we see that it says specifically of Jesus that Jesus didn't even consider 
what could be for his own gain, but rather considered it all loss, gave of himself his own life freely so that you and I might receive the gracious benefits of his death on a cross, so that we might have life because of his death. Jesus is the opposite of selfishness in every possible way, and it is, it is he who we rely on for salvation, and it is he who we desire to follow in his footsteps. Thirdly, worldly wisdom, it says, is false. Worldly wisdom is, is not true. Um, Ligonier Ministries and Lifeway Research, every year they tag team to do a study called the State of Theology. And what they do is they survey Americans across the board, uh, and they also specifically survey American evangelical Christians to determine uh, what is the spiritual barometer and what do people believe Um, It is a fascinating study. It just came out this week. Uh, I'm going to highlight for you three statements that they offered and got feedback on. This is what American evangelical Christians answered to these statements. First statement, Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. 43% of American evangelicals agree. What? Uh, Quote, God accepts the worship of all religions, including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. 56% of American evangelicals agree. The Bible, third statement, the Bible, like all sacred writings, contains helpful accounts of ancient myths, but is not literally true. 26% of American evangelicals agree. I'm not talking about the world, I'm talking about the church, or the church so-called. Jesus says in John 14, 6, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Jesus is hope. Jesus is life. Jesus is true. Worldly wisdom is a lie. Fourthly, worldly wisdom is satanic. It is fake and satanic. Satan, in his role, seeks to pretend to be Jesus, to pretend to be goodness and, and truth. Notice the downward descent that James gives. He says it's not, worldly wisdom is not heavenly. No, no, it's earthly. It's unspiritual. It, in fact, is demonic. Okay? The world, the flesh, and the devil cannot and will not deliver what they promise. They will not. Um, it appears to be wisdom on the surface, but it is, in fact, a counterfeit, uh, a fake Uh, Maybe you read with me uh, Revelation chapter 17 was in our Seeing Jesus Together journal a week, week and a half ago, and it struck me in a fresh way I'd never really thought about before as I read Revelation 17, the first part of verse 8. I've got that verse for you uh, behind me. Revelation 17, 8 says this, the beast, speaking of Satan, the beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. There's something about that that sounds very familiar. The book of Revelation written by the human author John is touching on something, and that is that Satan seeks to pretend to be Jesus, but he is in fact a fake, and he cannot and will not be who Jesus is. Run back to one of the many places it says in Revelation. Revelation 4 and verse 8 says this. This is the truth. The angels gathered in heaven, worshiping around the throne of Jesus. They say this. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. Who was, who is, and who is to come. Satan desires to replicate that, but he cannot. 
He was and he will not be and he is headed for destruction. But Jesus has been eternally, is present now, and will reign victoriously forever and ever. Amen. There is our hope. There is our wisdom. Jesus is the victor. He is the way to life. He is the true wisdom of God. So we reject earthly wisdom. And number two, big number two, receive the wisdom from God above. We see this in verses 17 and 18. Number two, receive the wisdom from God above. It is not enough to say, I reject that. We must come to Jesus and say, I want to live the way that you have instructed me to live. Those two verses say this, but the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Uh, Again, I want to boil down all these beautiful characteristics and look at four distinct attributes that we see uh, of the wisdom from above. The first is, the Bible says, it, it is pure. The wisdom from God is pure. It is undefiled. It is morally pure. This kind of purity comes when a person has been cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ, who is himself perfectly pure, and who gifts to us his perfect purity in salvation. By God's grace, we can put away our moral impurity, our sexual impurity, our secret secret sins done in the darkness. We can put away the idolatry that hurts ourselves and hurts other people. By God's grace, we can walk in purity because Jesus has first been pure, washed us of our sins, and gifted us his purity, but we must come to him. But even more, James here is speaking of a believer who has been saved, who has experienced new life, and that 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 believer's heart is continually being refined by the Lord and becoming more pure, meaning that their, their sole mission, their sole focus is to follow Jesus, to be on board with what Jesus is doing in the world, to joyfully submit to his commands given to us in the scripture. James says that a pure heart is tied to drawing near to God and God drawing near to us. Listen to James chapter 4, verse 8. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Not, not that you were perfect before Christ saved you, And not that in this life as a believer that you are somehow going to be perfect and put away all sinfulness, this side of glory. No, 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 no. But that by his grace and his purity, you strive to follow in that purity. And you know that there has been and there always will be forgiveness for the inevitable times when we make mistakes and when we fail. Pure because of a saving relationship with Jesus. Pure because of a new identity in Jesus gifted to you. Then the Bible says peaceable, pure and peaceable, secondly. Peaceable meaning peace-loving. I long for, I desire, I love, I strive for peace. Not peace because we are cowards. Not peace because we are unwilling to do healthy biblical confrontation. Not peace because when we see wickedness or evil or strife or problems that we run and hide. No, 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 that is not peace. True peace is a peaceful spirit because you have experienced the peace of God in your own life and you are able then to pour 
out of that overflowing fountain of Christ's peace into others' lives. And the, the basis of that is the reality that in our own sinfulness outside of Christ, our identity was an enemy with God. Sin is not a small thing. Sin is not a minor detail. The Bible speaks clearly that outside of God's salvation and grace, we are enemies of God and that Christ has solved the problem of our distance, our enemy nature with God and has brought, in fact, peace with God. And not only peace with God, but if God can, if Jesus can bring peace with a holy God, then we can also have peace with one another. Listen to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 14 through 16, an incredibly relevant verse for our day and age here, particularly in America. Speaking of Jesus, for he, Jesus himself, is our peace, who has made us both one, both meaning Jews and Gentiles, people who don't like each other much, and has broken down in his flesh, in Jesus' flesh, the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he, Jesus, might create in himself one new man in place of the two, Jews and Gentiles, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. I don't know if you've noticed or not, but there is a tad of aggression in our culture at present a skosh uh, of disunity over all of the topics that we can all recite immediately. And what the Bible is saying here so beautifully and so clearly is that peace comes when Jesus Christ forgives us of our sins and we experience a new relationship with God the Father. And that if Jesus can solve that problem, I'm pretty sure that he can solve your dilemmas and disagreements. That Jesus has come to create peace among all of us. Thirdly, it says open to reason. Pure, peaceable, open to reason. This is the wisdom from God. Open to reason. Think about that for a second. How do you approach when other people want to talk to you and speak into your life? Open to reason is an interesting characteristic of godly wisdom. Uh, Kent Hughes says in his commentary, he shares a story about Abraham Lincoln. Abraham Lincoln issued a command to transfer certain regiments during the Civil War And when Secretary of State Edwin Stanton received this order, he refused to carry it out and said that the president was a fool. Hmm. I don't know about you. I've had some difficult conversations. I've never told the president of the United States to his face that he was a fool. When Abraham Lincoln was told this, he replied, if Stanton said I'm a fool, then I must be. For he is nearly always right. I will see for myself. Question, believer, do you listen or do you make everyone else always listen? Um, The best barometer of that would be your spouse, your children. Would they say of you that you are one who is quick to listen or that you put everybody else in the position where your mouth is always moving and everybody else has to listen? If you want to experience growth and maturity as a believer, here's a very practical. Close your mouth, open your ears, and open your eyes to God's word. Just a practical every day. Now, is that hard? Yes. Does that sound harsh? I hope that it doesn't come across that way. But there's a beautiful reality that Jesus is offering us here. The fourth one is this, full of mercy and good fruits. And, And James actually ties these two together. Mercy 
and good fruits. Uh, It is striking to me that that James is not interested in sort of an academic wisdom here. He's not talking about simply a head knowledge. I'm not saying that we should not have head knowledge, but he is talking about a head knowledge that manifests itself in real life change, that manifests itself in particular by showing mercy to others and living out the fruits of the Spirit. How do I care for other people? Is my heart engaged and does it lead to actions of mercy or is it simply something that I know in my head? Um, I, I will say this, death is hard. I don't think that's a surprise to anybody in the room, but death is hard. We experienced that as a family afresh this week. And, and I know that in, in all of us is built in this, when death happens, it is much easier and our hearts immediately move to step back. It's hard. It's hard for everybody. And, and the words that the Lord has challenged me with in my own walk and, and that I saw in my family and in my church family this week is, is courage and compassion. That I saw family members who loved Doug and Doug's family very well, that they had the courage to step into hurt and show mercy. And they had the compassion to feel what everyone was, was feeling. That's mercy in action. The wisdom to show mercy in action. The Bible gives us a little bit more on this in Galatians chapter 5 when it lists the fruits of the Spirit. What, what is James getting at? This is what he's getting at. Galatians 5.22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love. If you're filled with the Spirit of God, you will experience and live out love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. I love that Paul gets a little snarky there at the end. There's no law against being loving, guys. I like what he does there. Uh, when I read that list, I am, it makes me want to live that way, and it reminds me that I'm not very good at it simultaneously. You have that sort of sense? What I take away from that most of all is that Jesus is each of these things perfectly. Jesus is perfect love. Jesus is perfect mercy. Jesus is perfect truthfulness, patience, kindness, faithfulness. He is all of those things perfectly. He has done for you what you could not do yourself. And in a saving relationship, he has invited you to be a part of what he is doing as well. Put your hope on Jesus who is perfect mercy. Third and finally, big, big number three, finally, to really go back to the first verse of this passage, in fact, verse 13, which sort of asks this self-assessing question, I want to uh, get to the heart of the matter. How do I gain godly wisdom? Number three, how do I gain godly wisdom? Tell me you're surprised when I say that I have four ways that I want to highlight this for you. Number one, the fear of the Lord. How do I gain godly wisdom? The Bible is clear. Number one, the answer is the fear of the Lord. We see this statement throughout Old and New Testament. Now we hear this, understand that the fear of the Lord in gaining wisdom does not mean I'm terrified of God. The fear of the Lord means humility. It means reverence. It means submission to God. That is what the fear of the Lord means. And this type of wisdom, this type of fear of the Lord is really based in the reality of knowing who God really is and that reality informing me as to who I really am. 
If you want to understand the brokenness of our culture, it is because our world does not understand the answer to either of those questions. Who is God? Who am I? Uh, The Westminster Shorter Catechism, number four, asks the question, pretty important question, what is God? What is God? You're on the street corner tomorrow, somebody walks up to you and says, what is God? Hmm. That's a good question. How would you answer it? Here's how the Westminster Shorter Catechism answers it from the scripture. Answer. God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, and truth. Who is God? God is the creator. God is the sustainer of the world. God is sovereign. God is good. God is love. God is perfect justice. God is perfect mercy, all-knowing, all-present, all-powerful, infinite. Well, what am I and who am I? I am finite. I am finite. I will not last forever, at least not my earthly body. I am sinful. When I see the holiness of God, it reveals my sinfulness. I am comfortable admitting to you that I am broken, that outside of Christ, I am dead in my sins, that I am hopeless outside of Christ, but in Christ, who am I and what am I? I am forgiven. I am made new. I have been given a second chance that I did not deserve, and I will never do anything to earn it or pay Jesus back because I can't. I have been given a new identity, and I have been given the gift of eternal life. That's who I am. The fear of the Lord understands who God is and therefore who I am. How do I gain God's wisdom? The fear of the Lord, number one. Number two, the salvation of the Lord. The salvation of the Lord. If you hear nothing else that I have said this morning, please hear this. This is the key. This is the number one thing. We are sinners in need of God's grace and God has made a way. Jesus has come to save us. We cannot save ourselves. If you want wisdom, back the train up. The first and most important thing that you must have is the salvation that comes only from Jesus. This might seem like a a unique or a curious scripture to to connect to here, but I want to read to you Matthew 11, 29, and 30. Jesus speaking, feel his compassion and feel the invitation in this. Jesus says, take my yoke, Upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. See, Jesus showed the the meekness, the gentleness, and the humility that we needed from him on the cross. He had the power not to, and he chose to go to the cross for you. Jesus wasn't cowardly. He didn't back away from the problem. He wasn't spineless or withdrawn. He faced death so that you and I would not have to face death. Uh, My kids and I just read a short version of the story Pilgrim's Progress, and then we watched a, a movie version of the story, John Bunyan's story, Pilgrim's Progress from 1600 and something or other. And if you don't know, it's the story of the Christian life and the main and really the the key character, his name is Christian. And there's one moment that I continue to replay in my head every single day. And it's the moment where Christian is actually becoming a Christian. He has this massive burden that keeps growing on his back. He's carrying this backpack filled with the weight of sin. And as he is 
approaching the scripture and hearing that the fear of the Lord is growing within him, the burden actually keeps growing because he's becoming more and more aware of his sin and his problem that he cannot solve it. And in this beautiful scene that is illustrated, and my eight, six, and four-year-old are watching it, Christian is climbing up a hill, and at the top of the hill, he can see the cross, and it is, it is ablaze with light, but he hasn't quite gotten there yet. And as he makes his way up this endless hill, he gets to the top of the hill, and his burden falls off. His burden rolls back down that hill as he sees and experiences and, and receives the kindness and the salvation that is Jesus' death and resurrection on the cross. And I thought, man, what an amazing scene, but then it got better. Because this huge burden keeps rolling down the hill and you're like, where is this humongous backpack going? And it keeps rolling down the hill and at the bottom of the hill, the illustrators built the tomb of Jesus Christ and the door is open and that burden rolls in to Jesus' empty tomb and the door slams shut because my sin was buried with Christ and it is gone. Hallelujah. You want wisdom? You need the salvation that comes only from Jesus Christ. James gives you very clearly only two choices, the wisdom, the truth, relationship with a God of love and power, or follow the world. There is no third option. Which will you choose? If you've never received Christ as Lord and Savior, let today be the day that you ask him. And it's a prayer that he always answers yes. Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner. Forgive me of my sins. And he will do it. He will take away the burden. If you are a believer... Rejoice in what Jesus has done for you. Two more ways. As a Christian now, if we have experienced the salvation of Christ, how do I gain wisdom? They are, they are obvious and they go together. We've got the fear of the Lord, the salvation of the Lord. We must listen to the word of the Lord and we must pray to the Lord. The, the final two. Listen to the word of the Lord and pray to the Lord. Reading God's word is God speaking to me. Praying is me speaking back to God. It is that simple and it is that beautiful and they are available 24-7, 365. God speaks to us every day in his word. God's word is complete. It is everything that we need for life and godliness. The scripture is 66 books, the Old and the New Testament, inerrant, infallible, and inspired by God. Psalm 119, verse 97 and 8 says this, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. And then pray to the Lord. James 1.5, we saw this a few weeks ago. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. Could it be simpler? If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. Ask a loving, loving, generous, prodigal Father God, and he will give. He loves to give. He delights to give good gifts to his children, so ask. Which wisdom will you follow? The wisdom of the world? The wisdom of, of Christ? Will you follow the Northwest Expedition of 1845? Or the living breathing Savior Jesus Christ. Let's pray together.